a message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. Welcome you once again to Trinity Grace. We're so glad that you're here, especially if you're a guest with us this morning. And if you have a copy of God's Word, you'll want to turn it to Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8, the passage is also printed for you in your worship folder. And kids, I'd like to invite you to be listening for the following three things during the sermon this morning. First, be listening for a story about a Christmas movie. A story about a Christmas movie here in June. Second, be listening for a reference to our galaxy, the Milky Way. And third, be listening for what, the New, what New Testament book quotes Psalm 8. Which New Testament book quotes Psalm 8? Well, this morning we're picking back up in our summer series on the Old Testament book of the Psalms. And as we've mentioned in the past, the Psalms is, are really a unique and beautiful part of our scriptures. I mean, even those who wouldn't claim to follow Jesus or believe in God have known something of the Psalms and find them to bring comfort in difficult seasons of life. It was Athanasius, who was a fourth century church father, reflecting on the Psalms, and he wrote this, whatever your particular need or trouble, from this book, you can find words to fit it. You find depicted in it all the movements of your soul, all its changes, its ups and downs, its failures and recoveries. In the Psalms, you can find a remedy for whatever ill you may have. Martin Luther, the reformer of the 16th century, called the Psalms a mini Bible. He said that you could find all the truth and all the scripture in the Psalms. One pastor says that we have 65 books of the Bible that speak to us, but the Psalms are the one book of the Bible that speaks for us. Another modern day commentator on the book of Psalms has said that the Psalms is a medicine chest for the heart. What a beautiful way to describe this book. The more you read the Psalms, the more you find these assessments to be true. And this morning, we're going to turn our attention to another psalm written by David, and this is a psalm of praise, the first psalm of praise that we find in the book of Psalms. And it's a beautiful psalm that orients us to the majesty of the Creator and the dignity of His creatures. This psalm invites us to praise and to worship. To see what I mean, you follow along as I read Psalm 8, beginning in verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth! You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Well, this is God's word and he gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. Well, I'm sure that some of you have movies that you watch every year when the Christmas season rolls around. We have a few movies that we watch every Christmas season as a family. Elf is one of our family favorites uh, um, when the month of December rolls around. But I also have some movies that I personally enjoy watching that aren't really appropriate yet for the entire family. And one of those movies is Griswold Christmas Vacation. 
If you've seen that movie, you might remember the character named Clark Griswold played by Chevy Chase. And the movie, he works at a food company where he researches how to improve the taste and the shelf life of food. And the CEO of that company is a man named Frank Shirley, and he is really greedy and pompous. He's, he's quite the character. And throughout the movie, you see Clark trying to get Frank's attention while at work. But Frank never really recognizes or even knows who Clark Griswold is. At one, part, uh, at one, one point, Clark passes his boss in the hall at work and asks if he appreciated his new contribution, his recent contribution, and his boss responds by calling him by the wrong name, which he does through the entire movie, calling Clark names like Mark, Bill, Carl. (laughs) And there's another point in the movie where Clark brings a wrapped gift to his boss during Christmas, and and Clark very, very kindly expresses Christmas wishes to Frank, but Frank just barks at Clark to put the gift with all the others on the table at the end of the room. You might remember that throughout the whole movie, Clark is expecting a big Christmas bonus from his company, and he's planning to put a pool in his backyard with that bonus. Well, the bonus is late in coming, and Clark begins to get really nervous through the movie, but finally on Christmas Day, the gift finally does come from the company by way of a mail carrier who said the envelope got lost in his car. And so Clark gets the envelope, he opens the envelope, but it's not a cash bonus like he expected. Instead, it's a year-long subscription to the Jelly of the Month Club. And you might remember that Uncle Eddie responds to that news by saying, that's the gift that keeps giving all year long, Clark. Needless to say, Clark is incensed at this point in the movie. He can't believe how he's been forgotten, overlooked, disrespected by his boss over and over again. Frank Shirley doesn't appreciate Clark's contributions. He doesn't remember Clark's name. And he treats Clark with apathy and contempt through the whole movie. It's hard to watch because we can put ourselves in Clark's shoes. It goes without saying that no one likes to be forgotten. No one likes to be overlooked. No one appreciates being disrespected. I'm sure that some of you remember needing to be picked up by your parents after school or after a sports practice when you were a child and you're the last kid there and the clock keeps ticking and your parents haven't shown up yet and you're angry and embarrassed because it seems like your parents have completely forgotten you and maybe they had. It's not a good feeling. Well, we know what it feels like to be forgotten. We know what it feels like to be overlooked by another person and I don't think it's a stretch to say that we sometimes believe that we've been forgotten or overlooked by God. I mean, if a parent can forget us, surely God, who has so much more important stuff to tend to and take care of, surely God can forget us. Surely God isn't personally concerned with me and my struggles and my desires. Surely he has more important things on his mind. I would imagine we've all felt forgotten by God at one point or another in our lives when we go through difficult seasons of doubt, persistent temptations, sickness, loneliness, spiritual drought, being worn out by caring for wayward children or aging parents. We experience these kinds of things and it makes us wonder sometimes, has God forgotten about me? Has he overlooked my distress? Does he care about what I'm experiencing? Well, Psalm 8 is a reminder that the God who created all that we see is intimately mindful of you. You are on God's mind. 
you attract his attention. When he thinks of you, he's not disgusted, he's not disappointed, he's not apathetic, he's not angry, he is mindful of you. He considers you, he is eager to care for you. That's the big idea for us this morning, and we're going to dive in a bit deeper through two main points. I want us to see how creatures are meant to consider the Creator, and then I want us to see how the Creator considers the creatures. First, let's take a look at how the creatures, you and me, are meant to consider the Creator. Notice how the passage begins and ends. It begins and ends in the same way. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. David here recognizes God as majestic and glorious. He acknowledges that all that he sees was crafted by the hand of God. David begins and ends this psalm by looking up, by considering who God is, and it drives him to worship. Now remember, David lived in a day and age without any light pollution from cities. Would have been pretty amazing. He spent lots of dark nights alone caring for sheep under a blanket of stars, the likes of which we've never experienced. David would have sensed his frailty against the forces of nature in ways we hopefully will never have to, given our modern comforts and protections. The world in which David lived was expansive. It was dangerous. It was a full of a sense of the transcendent. And it leads David to a deep reverence for his Creator a deep sense of awe and respect for the God who David knew personally. David had seen the heavens. He had gazed upon the moon. He had observed a sky full of stars. And it leads him to worship the God who is behind that creation. David doesn't just see the creation. He sees the wonder of the creator behind the creation. As C.S. Lewis might say, he traces the melody back to the composer. And we're invited to do the same thing along with David. We're invited to see the hand of the gracious, loving creator behind what we see and experience in this created world. And as we do, we can imitate David by appreciating the majesty and the creativity of God. First, I want to spend a few minutes considering the majesty of the creator. I read this past week that if our galaxy, go with me for just a minute, if our galaxy, the Milky Way, was the size of North America, then our entire solar system would be the size of a coffee cup. The earth would be just barely visible as a kind of speck in the coffee cup. And we know that the Milky Way is one of at least 100 billion galaxies that we can see. I had to go look that back up and and double check myself. And the universe might be way bigger than we can see. And according to David in Psalm 8, God made all that with his fingers. If the universe is tiny compared to God, what is God like? I mean, no wonder David starts and ends his psalm with praise to his majesty. Basically, our galaxy, which has billions of stars, is just a little speck of dust in the universe. God created all that with his fingers, according to Psalm 8, and he upholds it all, according to Hebrews chapter 1, with a word of his power. A word of his power. I mean, talk about majestic. Talk about impressive and weighty and expansive and important. If you just consider the scope of the created world, the moon and the stars, and then think that whoever created what we can't even comprehend must be far bigger and more majestic than the creation. 
As David says in Psalm 8, God's glory is above the heavens. His name is majestic in all the earth. Now let's spend a few minutes considering the creativity of the creator. The beauty, glory, intricacies of the creation display the creativity and complexity and beauty and genius of the maker. What does it mean when the Bible says that God made all this with his finger? Well, I would say it means he's an artist. Every other ancient creation account that was written back before or around the time of the Bible always has the world being created out of a battle. There's always some kind of struggle in these creation accounts. There's some kind of battle and as a result, somebody dies or something catastrophic happens and the world is created. Every other creation account is the result of violent forces or powers coming at each other, but not the Bible. The Bible says our God is so powerful and majestic that he made the world as an artist. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 1. According to David in Psalm 8, he made it with his fingers. He made it simply for the delight of doing it and the love of doing it. And what we do know about great art, great art always shows you the inner being of the artist. It always reveals something about the creator. Everything in creation screams that there's a creator. The beauty, the glory, the intricacies of creation display the creativity and the complexity and the beauty and the genius of God. We look at the, we look at the Corvette and we admire it, right? But at some point we say, who made this thing? You know, you might look at something and admire it, but at some point you're asking, where did this come from? The creation is like art exhibit where you go from one aspect of the creation to another and it all displays the creator's goodness and glory. As we consider the created order, it reveals the character of God. What does it show us about God? Well, it shows us all sorts of things. I mean, it shows us the wisdom of God, how the human body's made, how it works. It shows us the joy of God, the humor of God. You see that in creation. You see some animals out there and you kind of wonder what was God thinking when he created them. To be a, a, a sanctified soul, to be holy is to be a person who sees the entire world belonging to God and shot through with his glory. And what a way to live. What an attitude toward life. What an attitude toward everything around you. A world shot through with meaning, shot through with the glory of God. We are creatures, we're meant to look up. And as we consider our creator, we are meant to recognize his majesty and his creativity. And in light of God's majesty and creativity, David turns around and can't believe that God would pay him any attention. David moves from looking up to looking down in verse 4. He wonders why God, who is so majestic, would even be mindful of mankind. Why do we even register with him? David is seeking to understand who he is in light of God's majesty. And this is actually the normal experience of a man. We look at our situation, we look at our circumstances and our surroundings, and we seek to understand our place in it. And there are a couple of different ways that we can reflect upon ourselves in relation to God's creation. The first option is that we can look around and we can exalt ourselves. I mean, we're the top of the food chain after all. And we can harness aspects of the creation for our good and our desires. We can look at the creation and think, how great are we? The other option is that we can look at creation and reduce ourselves. I mean, the other option is, is we think of ourselves as valueless. Simply another piece of the cog. And this is like worm theology. 
Neither of them are appropriate. Look at how David reflects upon himself in relation to God's creation. Look at verses 3, 4, and 5. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. David is basically saying, when I look at all this, when I look at the vastness out there, what are we? We're nothing. He was looking at glory and the glory made him feel by comparison worthless. He was looking at the vastness and the vastness made him feel by comparison insignificant, negligible. And this reflection upon our place in the creation should bring about not pride, but humility. What is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Who are we? I mean, we know this. Some of you have been to the Grand Canyon. got the chance to go a few years ago for the first time. And if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, you know that no one stands on the edge of that canyon and thinks, man, I am awesome. I just feel so big and important right now. You would have to be the most narcissistic person to stand at the foot of God's glorious creation and think that. No, humility is what we experience in our hearts. When we stand next to the ocean, when we stand next to the Grand Canyon, we feel small, and rightfully so. We worship a God who made all that we see, who's completely transcendent. I mean, try to count the stars. You can't, but God knows each one. Try to imagine every crevice of the Grand Canyon. You can't know them all, but God fashioned them. I mean, this is one who knows the stars. He can count the sand on the seashore. This creator is mindful of you. This should stir in us thankful humility that counteracts prideful exaltation. It's good for us to feel small sometimes. Just think about the kind of humility we should exhibit when we get a sense of God's infinite majesty in our finite existence. This psalm doesn't just invite us to humility, though. It also invites us to see ourselves in one another with great dignity. Look at verse 5. You have made man a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. This is what God has done to us. He has crowned us, given us honor, given us dignity. In Genesis chapter 1, we read how God created the heavens and the earth and all that we see. And on the sixth day before his week of creating was complete, he made man, Adam, and Eve. And he made them in his own image. We're the only parts of his creation that have that distinction. Made in the image of God. It wasn't until he was done with his creating of man that he looked upon the whole of his creation and said that it was very good. We're a part of that. Thomas Aquinas, the 13th century theologian, was one of the first to stress this, saying that Psalm 8 places man midway between the angels which are above him and the beasts which are below him. Man is a spirit body being, according to Aquinas. Angels have spirits, but no bodies. Animals have bodies, but no spirits. Man, however, has both a spirit and a body, so comes in between. And it's significant that David says we're made a little lower than the angels. He does not say that we're a little higher than the beasts. He focuses on our dignity in this psalm, placing us in the seat of honor, so to speak. Reminding us that we reflect God's glories in ways that other parts of creation do not and cannot. At least one thing this means is that all humans have dignity. Everyone carries the image of God, whether they follow Jesus or not. Every person you meet bears the imago Dei, and this should dictate our rules of engagement with other people. 
Like C.S. Lewis once said, you have never met a mere mortal. He says, the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror in a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. Every person we meet, including ourselves, has dignity. But not only do we have dignity as image bearers of God, we also have been given responsibility by the Creator. Look at verses 6, 7, and 8. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. This should sound remarkably familiar to us. In Genesis chapter 2, after God created man, what did he do with him? Well, he gave him responsibility. He gave him dominion over his creation. It's important to note that this dominion, while originally imitated or initiated before the fall, it continues even after sin entered the world. Our dominion, though affected by sin, it continues. And this dominion is not something that we take. It's something that's been given to us from God. God is the one who is created. He's the one who has ultimate and absolute authority. And he's the one who gives his people out of his grace this dominion this responsibility. We are God's agents who are called to care for his creation. And this means that because our dominion is under God's authority, it has to reflect him. Some people are going to hear dominion and think domination and abuse. But that's not how this is supposed to be. It's supposed to be what's called responsible dominion. Remember back in elementary school when you got your school books the first week of class? What was the first thing that you had to do after receiving those books, if you remember? Well, you had to cover them. That's right. You had to go home and cut up paper grocery bags and put cover on the books. Why? Because they weren't your books, right? I mean, they were simply loaned to you. There there was an expectation to care for the books, to keep them from being damaged. Well, in an even greater way, that's what God is calling us to do, to exercise dominion over his creation over every portion of it in a way that reflects his ownership and his care. It's all his, and so we should rule over his world as he would. And it's a privilege. God has taken us, and he's not only shown love and care for us, but has called us to participate with responsibility. Look, one of the things we're always implicitly asking is, am I significant? Do I matter? We silently ask this question in our relationships and through what we do on a daily basis. Am I significant? Do I matter? And this psalm comes along and it reminds us that we are significant and that we do matter. Psalm 8 is a psalm that highlights God's majesty and our significance. And some of you might know that the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 8 when he talks about Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 2, Psalm 8 is quoted. He says that Jesus. The second person of the Trinity, God himself, was made a little lower than the angels. That's what the author of Hebrews says. In other words, God himself, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh. He became a person. He became a created being. The one who made everything that we see, the one who created what we can't even comprehend, came to visit us. The creator came and stepped down into his creation. He was born in a manger and he grew up. And instead of taking power, he lost power. He gave it up. He turned in his majesty for a time. And at the end of his life, he went to the cross. Now, why did he go to the cross? 
Well, you know, to die for our sins. We heard it this morning from the mouth of babes. Why did he die for our sins? Because he was mindful of us. As he went to the cross, we filled his mind. Little you, little you, you fill his mind so much that he was willing to come and become a baby and become weak and die on a cross for you. Talk about majestic creativity. I mean, we never would have written the story the way that we find it in the scriptures. What a gospel. It causes us to worship and praise, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you for your goodness and grace to us. Thank you for your word that shows us your majesty, your creativity, your willingness to come to earth so that you might rescue us. Lord, we pray that we would continue to be shaped and formed by your word and that you would use us even this week as we seek to love you and love our neighbor to point people to Jesus in whose name we pray, amen.